Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, this is a special bonus edition of The Naked Scientists in which Adam Murphy sets out to learn more about the world of modelling. Not in the Naomi Campbell sense, but instead how researchers use computer simulations to gain an understanding of the world and make predictions about the future, such as the spread of diseases, whether a rocket will make it into orbit, and even whether it's going to rain tomorrow. From looking at galaxies to the tiniest of subatomic particles. Computer models are pivotal in making science tick. They model how traffic moves in a city and they predict weather patterns. Or at least they try to. But what are computer models good for? And how do they work? I'm Adam Murphy and I'll be finding out. First up, what exactly is a computer model? I spoke to Dominic Orchard from the University of Kent to find out. In science, when we're trying to understand our world, we often come up with models, they're ways of explaining and representing our world that hide some of the inessential details. So we might be trying to understand gravity and we might come up with a model of how a ball drops to the ground and it doesn't matter about its colour or the wind speed or who's dropping the ball or its size. We just forget some of the inessential details and focus on maybe the speed of it and how it bounces and how long it takes and so on. So modelling is in general, is about coming up with a way of understanding the world and having a theory that captures the essential details of what we're studying. So how do you make one? What are the steps involved from going from a scientific idea to a computer model? So you might start off with doing some mathematics. You might have a rough idea of the relationships you want to represent. So it often starts there. You then need to come up with a way of using that relationship to calculate predictions You write this down as a computer program using some programming language. So over the last 60, 70 years that we've been using computers, we've also developed languages which help us communicate to the computer and tell it what to do. And those languages give us a way of expressing our ideas. So we pick a language, we write down our model, we use the mathematics as the starting point, and we develop this piece of software which will then allow us to put some inputs in and get some outputs that give us our prediction. And why do we bother? How important can this actually be? Well, computer models are everywhere, from modelling the climate to predicting how crops can be impacted by disease. I learned just how vital these models are from Chris Gilligan, Professor of Mathematical Biology at the Plant Sciences Department at the University of Cambridge. We have epidemics developing where you've got microorganisms spreading or insects, which are rapidly then feeding upon crops and reducing yield. This can happen over very large areas, so that we could be looking at not just one country in East Africa, 
but many countries in East, in East Africa. And some of these pathogens then can spread by wind dispersal and form a threat also, for example, to the Indian subcontinent. You can have complete crop loss. It's as serious as that. With so many variables affecting this, like weather, crop type, animal species, computer models become necessary. But how do you put them into practice? Imagine that you are flying over Africa, looking down, and you're seeing the mosaic of a particular crop, which could be maize, could be a whole range of, of different crops. So how is that arranged on the landscape? What's the connectivity of the crop? And how can we characterise that? So we have some notion as to where the crop is, but that will be known with various levels of certainty, and indeed various levels of uncertainty. On top of that, we're going to have the pest or pathogen spreading, so we need to extract a signal as to how the pest or the pathogen spreads. What's the signal? On top of that, we have the environment changing. So you have a layer for the host crop, a layer for the pathogen spreading, and a layer for fluctuating environmental conditions. We're going to put those three components together, and that will say, okay, if we know that we have the pathogen at a given a particular site here, we know the connectivity of the crop, we know the ability of the pathogen to spread, and we know whether or not the environmental conditions are generally favourable. One can write equations for this, but clearly you can't solve that on the back of an envelope and you need something bigger. So that's where the computational methods come in. A computer model is a simplified version of reality. How much simpler, though? How intricate and how big do these programs get? To learn about that, I spoke to Luke Abraham, researcher in the Centre for Atmospheric Science in Cambridge. His models are designed to help us understand what's going on in our atmosphere, especially as the climate of our planet continues to change. So the the model that we use here has nearly a million lines of computer code. The chemistry and aerosol component has over 120,000 lines of computer code. Um, And there's various different schemes because these uh, interact with the atmosphere and the land surface and the oceans. Um, So we'll have, we need to consider how these chemicals and aerosol particles will fall and land on the land surface how they might be emitted from the land or from the oceans, how they'll interact with the atmosphere, how they'll affect the winds. Uh, if we go to one thing, say, I think when you think of a lot of climate, a lot of people think of ozone. Yes. Which is just three oxygen molecules come together, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. How, taking that one molecule, say, what would be the challenges in modelling everything that might do in the atmosphere? Well, I mean, ozone is very interesting because it's so important for human health and for the... Uh, the, the atmosphere as well. So uh, ozone is a, uh, interacts with the, the, the sunlight coming in. So if you change ozone, you will change how the atmosphere absorbs this radiation. It will change the wind field. So you can't just impose, uh, really, you can't just impose a, a, an ozone concentration. You need to model it interactively. And so ozone will be affected by changes in the winds, and then it will affect the winds itself. In the stratosphere, ozone is very protective because it absorbs harmful UV radiation, but at the surface, it's very bad for people. It can have very bad health effects. But I could type all day and just end up with nonsense. Some might even consider that my full-time job. And science, after all, is built on making sure you have correct, reliable, and above all, repeatable results. How do I know that when I have a computer model, that it works? Over to Dominic Orchard. Ah, well, that's the key question. So there's really two questions there. There's, 
is the science good and is this computer program good? So the process of validation is what we've been traditionally doing in science for decades, which is we have a hypothesis, we come up with a model, we generate some predictions, and then we do some experiments and we compare the data and, and say, did we come up with a good model? Does it provide predictions that match with the real world? That's what we call validation. But there's an additional aspect when you're writing software, which is verification. Does this computer program do what we think it does? Have we implemented this model correctly or have we made some mistake? So if you have written your computer model and you, and you run it through, you get some predictions out of it and they don't line up with your experiments, then you've got two questions to consider. Is the problem with the model or is the problem with my program? And in the real world, how effective can computer models be? Chris Gilligan tells me about the success of his models. How do we test whether or not the, the models are working well? By making predictions and then uh, observing what happens. And so with some of the forecasting work that we're doing for a wheat disease in Ethiopia, we've run that now over four years, and particularly in the first two pilot years when there was a lot of disease present, there's also a big threat this year. Um, the feedback that we've had from both the results and from the farmers involved is that um, using the methods that we developed, that was the first time that they'd ever managed to control an epidemic efficiently in the country and manage to get the fungicide on at the right time and save yield. So that in itself is encouraging. One very important feature too about these models is we should build in uncertainties and inherent variability into the system. So traditionally, people think of mathematics that you have a deterministic system, that you run your equations and whatever you have on the right-hand side will always lead to what you have on the left-hand side. But life is not like that. When you're working with complex computer programs, you need them to work reliably, especially when lives or our climate are on the line. But why do programs go wrong? What happens when they do? And how can we go about fixing it? I spoke to Andy Rice, a reader in computer science at Cambridge University, about just how wrong things can go, and about the time a computer bug brought down one of NASA's orbiters. There are various definitions, but what we're really interested in are problems in the software which cause it to go wrong. So if you've ever used an app on your mobile phone and it's crashed, there's a software bug somewhere. It might be in the phone itself. It might be in the application that's caused that to go wrong. And that's sort of like a really obvious problem. You know it's broken. But there are also other problems which are really much more subtle. Like, for example, there could be a bug in your bank software and they get your interest calculation slightly wrong or something like that. And these things sort of live quietly in the background until they become significant enough that someone notices there's a problem. This applies to all programs. In science, you need to make sure the computer is getting things right. You need to know when things go wrong that it's the fault of your theories, not buried in a million lines of code. And when you don't, well, problems can occur. Basically, what happened was there were two software teams working on the software. And one team was in Europe and one team was in America. And the American team worked in imperial units. They used feet and inches. And the European team worked metric and they used meters and centimeters. And nobody noticed that there was a mismatch between these two things. And so when they put the software together and deployed it, something went wrong and the whole thing exploded. And uh, the mismatch was basically at the sort of the boundary between two pieces of software when they connected them together. 
this is called like a units of measure error, where one size uses one, one way of measuring something and one size uses the other one. They put them together and everything went wrong. That's a pretty big catastrophe for such a tiny mistake. Now, all software has bugs in it. It just can't be avoided. You can't perfectly write tens of millions of lines of code without making a mistake somewhere. Most will just hide and never cause problems. But some will make your orbiter explode or open a security vulnerability in your bank account. So computer scientists have sort of looked at this problem for a while and developed various techniques to try and improve the quality of software and reduce the number of bugs in it. And it's sort of a sad fact that all software has bugs. In fact, if you look at sort of industry code, then the average is around 15 to 50 bugs per thousand lines of software. So they're just out there and they're there all the time. Uh, if you think of an example, so like the Firefox web browser, if you've ever used that for, for browsing the internet, that has about 37 million lines of code in it. So uh, that's probably around about like half a million bugs by that by that sort of average rate. And most of these problems, of course, just disappear under the radar. We don't notice them and they're not a big deal until something comes together and you have a security vulnerability or something crashes or your bank account gets the wrong balance on it or something. So maybe you can't get rid of all of them, but you'll want to fix all the ones you can get rid of. So there are various ways we can try to deal with software bugs. Uh, The first one is to try and stop them getting in the code in the first place. The second one is to try and detect them once they're in there, but before we deploy the software for real. And then finally is to try and detect them in the field. And obviously the earlier in the process that you can detect the bugs, uh, the cheaper it is, and also sort of the um, the less impact they have on whoever's using the software because it hasn't, it hasn't got out there. So uh, we work on something called static analysis, which is a basically a set of techniques where you look at the program itself and you try to determine by just looking at the program whether or not there are bugs in the, in the code. So uh, one form of static analysis is um, like type checking. And this has been developed in programming languages right from the very first languages that came around. This idea that we want to tell the program that this value is a particular type, like it has to be an integer or it can be a floating point number. It has to be a Boolean, either true or false. And uh, this is a form of static analysis in that we annotate our program, telling the computer what the types are of different things. And then it will tell us if we try and put the wrong type in the wrong place. So if you think about uh, a recipe, for example, say you're making lemon meringue pie and the recipe says, you know, pour the cream on the plate and whisk it. Then you sort of look at that and you go, well, cream on a plate doesn't make sense. They don't go together. That's a type error. Right. And then that's the kind of thing that we can catch with a with a type system. It's been proven that you can't do this in general for all programs and prove that they actually do everything that you want them to do. But you can do sort of little pieces of it and try and get closer and closer to that to that point. And that's not just idle speculation. British mathematician Alan Turing proved that you can never make one program that can find all the faults in another. It's called a halting problem. So if that's the case, how do you go about fixing bugs at all? Yes. So one of the things that we've been doing, because we've been working with scientists and and looking at these sort of uh, numerical programs, is we think about the the, we think about the Mars Climate Orbiter problem and the units of measure system, and we say, can we build some check that we can we can analyze the source code of the software and detect whether there is a units of measure problem with it? So we basically look at the the program itself 
and then look at the flow of data through that program and make sure that there's no places where people have added feet onto meters, for example, and caused their Mars orbiter to explode. So we can statically check programs to, to make sure that that property holds. And then scientists can be confident that they don't have these kind of errors going forward. And Luke Abraham told me about his own issues and hurdles when it comes to dealing with computer bugs. Sometimes the bug that you have might make the code fail in a completely different section of code that's, you know, got, you might think nothing to do with the bit where the bug exists. And the error that comes out might not be particularly informative. You know, it might, it then becomes difficult to track down exactly what's going on. We had a problem uh, last year where we were seeing issues very high up in the atmosphere, but actually the issues were to do with problems at the surface that were then being propagated through the atmosphere by the transport scheme in the model. So just because you've got what appears to be a problem somewhere, the error might be somewhere else. And in the end, we found the problem, we fixed the problem, it was rather simple change, and then you move on to the next problem. But what about big problems like weather forecasts? When you need to solve a massive, intricate, complex problem, you need a massive, intricate, complex computer. A supercomputer. But how super are these things? So a supercomputer is characterized by being able to tackle problems that are too big or too long, or perhaps require too much storage for to run on a normal computer. That is Geoffrey Salmon from Research Computing Services at the University of Cambridge. And that could be something that requires a lot of data to be stored in memory. So a, a typical desktop computer might be able to store maybe 100 gigabytes of memory if it's fully spec'd out, whereas a supercomputer might be able to deal with terabytes or even larger amounts of memory, all focused on solving a particular problem. We used to talk about computers have speeds of about a gigahertz, and so that means that every cycle in the computer takes about a nanosecond. But to be useful as a supercomputer, we have to talk about networks that can communicate between the components with times of like a microsecond. So that means that for every 1,000 steps that each component can do in the computer, it can send a message to one of its neighbors that can, they can work together to do something useful. If it takes longer than that, then it's hard to write a program that can make use of the components of the computer together. Uh, how fast can supercomputers get? I mean, compared to, say, your average desktop? So we normally measure supercomputer performance in this word called FLOPS, which stands for floating point operations per second, where a floating point operation is something like an addition or a subtraction or a multiplication of a number. And we, a normal desktop could be something like 100 megaflops, which is 100 million calculations per second. A supercomputer, the largest supercomputer in the world at the moment, which was installed recently in the US, is the Summit machine, and that can do of the order of 100 petaflops. A petaflop is 10 to the power of 15, or 1,000 million million calculations every second. So the one, the supercomputer that we have in the university, or we have two actually, they're both about one petaflop, and they use about one megawatt, which, in terms of equivalence, you're... A kind of a typical domestic house might use a peak of about 10 kilowatts, I reckon. So a whole supercomputer running at a megawatt is probably about 100 times that, so 100 houses, equivalent to a village, perhaps, worth of power. So it takes a village to solve a math problem. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of problems are supercomputers best at solving? 
So supercomputers are great at solving big problems that require lots of communication between the components. And the real, the classic problem for a supercomputer, in fact, one of the problems that supercomputers were first used for back in like the 60s or so, was for doing simulations of the weather. And so the, to solve a simulation for the weather, to make a prediction about what the weather's going to be tomorrow, we typically work by loading in an estimate of what the weather is now and applying some physical laws to make a guess or a calculation or an estimate, depending on your view of how effective weather forecasting is, of what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. And a key bit about a weather forecast is that if my simulation is not finished by tomorrow, then it's not going to be very useful. I don't need a prediction of the weather later than I can just look out of the window. So the supercomputer has to be fast enough to be better than real time in its calculations. So what's the next step for supercomputers and what are the challenges in getting there? So a big project in the supercomputing world has been this uh, challenge to get to an exaflop, which is 10 to the 18 calculations per second, which is an even bigger number and in, the, in a way is a kind of uh, artificial target, but it's a big and exciting project because it's going to require development at every layer through kind of what builds a supercomputer right down from the hardware, making new components that can not take too much power, all the way up to the software that runs on these supercomputers and makes all this raw power useful, and beyond that even onto the maths and the algorithms that are used to, for example, do a simulation of the weather. And what are we working on now? What are the next steps forward? I spoke to Dominic about Camfort, a tool he's developed to improve the quality of code that's currently being written. So for many decades in computer science, we've been thinking about the question of how do you ensure that a piece of software does what you intended? And we've been developing tools and techniques for ensuring the correctness of computer programs. However, we noticed that these techniques often don't cross over into science, into the physical and natural scientists. We've got a bit of a chasm, a communication divide between the two fields. So we find that actually the techniques we've developed aren't being applied. And that's partly because the techniques we've developed aren't specialised and targeted to the domain that scientists are interested in. So the idea with Camfort was to take our knowledge as computer scientists about how to do programme verification and to actually have real serious conversations with scientists to find out what their challenges are, what the problems are, how we can help, how we can come up with new tools and new techniques to actually ensure that scientific models are implemented as intended. And where do we go from here? I leave you with these parting words from Andy Rice. Computational models are already a vital tool for understanding the world. They're used to inform planning and policy in every part of society, but there's always demand for faster, more accurate predictions. My hope is that computer scientists can help meet this need by developing more expressive languages, new tools to find bugs, and new computers to run it all on. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.